So uh, I don't know if you remember back when you were in high school. In high school, uh, the fall semester usually went something like this. From September uh, to December, you would learn all kinds of amazing things, uh, and then you would go on break for two weeks, and you would come back, and you would have forgot everything you learned in the last four months. Right? You come back, and I think for most people it's going to be tomorrow for your high school students. You're going to come back and be like, what was it that we learned about calculus? I don't remember that there was... There is some, uh, some vague memory that you learned something in the fall, but you don't really remember what it is, and you have to learn it all again before exams in three weeks. Uh, so I don't know if you remember, but back in the fall, we studied the book of First Peter. And perhaps you have a vague memory that that is something that we did, but you forget all the details. Uh, so what I want to do before we start, we are going to be in First Peter chapter 3 uh, today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up, uh, go there. But I want to just give us a quick summary, reminder of everything that's happened in First Peter up until uh, this point now. Uh, and then we'll jump into the text uh, together. Uh, So Peter, at this point, he opened his letter uh, by reminding us that we were born again to a living hope in Christ, uh, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, uh, and that we have this hope just by grace. And and he said that if we have this hope, though, we are going to start to live in a certain way. We we have this amazing hope, but it means that we are going to start to be holy uh, like God is holy. Uh, We are going to abstain from the passions uh, of the flesh. Uh, And then in chapter 2, Peter uh, has this line in verse uh, 12, which kind of framed a bunch of the discussion that we we went through. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 12, he says this, uh, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, uh, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so that idea of keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, Peter took that and he started to apply that principle into specific uh, situations of our life. He said, what does that look like then between the citizens and a government? Right? What does that look like for servants and masters? Uh, what does that look like for husbands and wives, especially if one of them is an unbeliever? Uh, what, what does that principle look like? And so today when we jump into our text, uh, what we're going to see is he is finishing up that that discourse. What does it look like for us to live honorable lives? But now he turns his attention not to specific situations out there, but to within the church. What does it look like for us to live as the church? And, and what does it also look like when, when people outside the church do evil to us? So there's two kind of sections, what it looks like for us to be the church, and then kind of with outsiders involved. So the, the two points uh, from today are simply this. Uh, love your church family and repay evil with blessing. Love your church family and repay evil uh, with blessing. So uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 8 to start. Uh, it says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So that's verse 8. Peter gives some instructions to us. He kind of summarizes everything, and he, and he speaks. He says to all of you, So that's to the church. Everybody he's writing to, okay, all of you need to to do these things. And and you can notice that all of the instructions he gives, they kind of have a social aspect to them. They're really about how we relate to one another in the church, right? How How do we have healthy relationships in the church? He gives us five things. Five things which will help us to facilitate healthy relationships in the church, to love our church family. So uh, all I want to do is take them one by one here. We'll go through them and see uh, what's there. Uh, First, he calls us uh, to unity of mind. Have unity of mind, he says. Uh, So unity of mind uh, does not mean that we have unity about every single thing. 
uh, but that we have unity about the main things, the important things. Right? So husband and wife, uh, I don't know about you, but me and my wife do not agree about everything. Right? But we agree about the main things. But in the church, it's the same. We don't have unity about every single thing, but we have unity about the important things, about what the gospel is, that Jesus came to save sinners. He did it by grace, by his death and resurrection, and only by faith in him can we actually have access to the eternal life he offers. We have unity about the mission of the church, that we exist to make Jesus known uh, to one another, to our city, to the nations. That's why we exist. So we have unity about those main central things. And all the other things, well, they're, they're secondary. We don't have to necessarily have agreement on all of those things. It, it means that when we're, when we're wor- working towards the furthering of the gospel, uh, we are not kind of uh, paddling in two directions, right? You've got a boat and somebody's trying to paddle one way, somebody's trying to paddle the other. Uh, you don't get anywhere, right? We're, we're trying to paddle the boat in the same uh, direction. And so the idea is that these... Uh, Smaller, secondary things are not going to distract from our main unity. But if you think about it, in the world right now, I was listening to uh, an interview with a pastor. He's like 80 years old now. He's been pastoring for a long time. He said that right now, uh, there is more disunity and tribalism in the church than he's ever seen before. Because there are a whole host of things that can make us divided. But these are not the main things. People are not fighting about the divinity of Christ. Uh, People are fighting about covid about race relations, about minor theological things, about politics. And yet churches are splitting. Denominations are, are, are splitting. People who they used to have close fellowship with are not anymore because of things that are not central. And so when Peter says we are to have unity of mind, he, he means that we have unity because we're united about the same thing, the, the main things, not, not about these secondary things. Right, so if you think, think about it like a, a hockey team, a hockey team does not actually need to agree on very much to be a team. All they need to agree on is the puck needs to go in the other team's net more than ours. Right? If they agree on that, then it's good. We got a strategy. This is how we're going to do that. We're going to accomplish that goal. You know what? If, if you like to have your jersey untucked, but I like mine tucked, it doesn't matter. Right? If you like this brand of skate more than, than that one, it doesn't matter. You shoot right-handed, you shoot left-handed, just get the puck in the net. Right? And so we as a church, there's going to be a whole host of secondary things, some theological perhaps, some not, but these things where, where we might not be united. We might think differently than a brother or sister here in the church, and that's okay. Because they're somebody that Christ has died for, and we are united about the main thing. So, so, so hear me, it, it's not that you shouldn't be passionate or shouldn't care about those other things. Like, be passionate about those things. Just don't be more passionate about those things than Jesus. Right? Like, Jesus is the main thing. And as a church, that is what unites us. So we are to have uh, unity of mind. And it's just worth, before we move on, just asking ourselves, is there, is there something in our life we can think of where it's, we have a hesitant, hesitancy to interact with another brother or sister because they believe X. Because they do fill in the blank. Are, are, are there things that we have made big that actually need to be made small? And Jesus needs to be made big. We need to have unity of mind. Peter calls us, uh, secondly, to sympathy. He says, have sympathy for one another. Uh, sympathy just means that we are understanding, caring uh, for one another. 
Uh, it means that we, we seek to understand where people are at. We don't just come down and give a harsh judgment to somebody before we've really understood their situation. Why is it that they said that? Why is it that they did that? We, we want to seek to have understanding uh, with someone. And it means that we care for those uh, who are hurting uh, in, in our midst, in our family. Right? It, it, Paul instructs us, hey, rejoice with those who rejoice, but also weep with those who weep. Right? The writer of Hebrews says, you know what? Remember those who are in prison uh, as if you were in prison with them. Right? So, so the struggles that people in our congregation are going through, we need to identify with them, sympathize with them, seek to understand and care for them in those situations. Peter also says we have brotherly love. Uh, brotherly love meaning uh, not just a love that you have for an acquaintance or friend, but for family. Right? And so we are to treat each other not just as passing friends or people who have decided to come to an event together every Sunday morning, uh, we're to treat each other as family. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ, people who we will sacrifice much for, people who we will uh, love even when it's tough because we have a, a family love, a brotherly, sisterly love for one another. Uh, fourth, Peter instructs us to have a tender heart. A tender heart, meaning the, the opposite of a hard heart, or a tender, moldable heart when you interact with other people. You're, you're not quick to anger or, or harsh, but, but you have a heart that, that seeks to understand, that seeks to love, that, that people want to come to you because they, they know that you have a tender heart. You will be compassionate and understanding with them. And lastly, uh, Peter calls us to have a humble mind. A humble mind meaning uh, that when we interact with other people in a church, uh, we don't think that we know it all. We come and we say, uh, yeah, actually there are some things that, that I don't know. That I can, you know, when we come to CG, we're not there to tell everybody what we know. We're there to learn and grow uh, from others. You know, and, and we have to be honest though, there are many gifts that we have that God's given us. Right? So when we interact in, in our church, we should know that there are some of you super gifted in business. Some of you are super gifted in the arts. Some of you know theology like nobody's business. You, you can pray like no tomorrow. There's gifts, there's talents, there's abilities that God has given you. But we remember with a humble mind, what do we have that we haven't received? Everything we have, gifts, talents, abilities, all of that that we have, we can't boast in that because God gave us that. It's a gift. So we, we use those to serve others. We have a humble mind towards even the things that God has given uh, to us. So those are the five things that Peter instructs us. Uh, hard things, uh, not easy things necessarily uh, to do, but in the midst of them, uh, we are to follow the example of, of Christ. Right? The reason we can, we can do these things is because that's actually how Jesus was. Right? If you think about Jesus, Jesus, of course, had perfect unity of mind and the Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, but Jesus was full of sympathy, right? Uh, it, we read just in Hebrews about how we have a, a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in, in our weakness because he was tested and tried as we are, yet without sin. So he, he entered into our world. He came into our hurts and sorrows so that he could understand and sympathize with us. And Jesus, of course, has brotherly love. He loves us as, as family. Even though we weren't, we were outside, he brought us into his family. He has a tender heart. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. He says, come to me. Come to me, you who are sinners, and find rest for your souls. And Jesus, of course, is of humble mind. Because being God, he did not count that to be grasped, but made himself nothing, humbling himself and taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Right? Jesus humbled himself in that way. So when we act as the church, what we are doing is we're just following the head. He's the head, we're the body. We just follow after Christ and all that he has done to us. We are showing and displaying Christ to one another. And we, we show what Christ is like to the outside world by how we treat one another. But here's the thing. Uh, you have to actually be in relationship with other people in order to do this. Right? Like you have to actually be in community with other people if you want to actually practice the things that Peter is talking about here. Uh, you, you, you can't just do this by yourself. Uh, you can't just do it when, if you come on a Sunday morning for an hour and then leave. You need to be involved in other people's lives. Whether that's community group for Bible studies or it's having people over into your home. It, it's, it's calling others to see how they're doing. It's being intentional, having play dates with their kids so that you can get to know and serve and love the church family. But it takes effort. It takes effort. So I, I do thank God though because I, I feel that, that by God's grace, we have experienced many of these things here in this church. Uh, I look around and I am, am pleased to say that, that I have experienced much brotherly love from many of you. Uh, I, I see your humble minds. Uh, but let us strive to do this more and more. Right? Let us keep striving after Christ's likeness in all that we do together uh, as a church. That we would really love each other as a church family. So that's point one. Point one, love uh, your church family. Uh, we'll take a little bit more time uh, with point number two. Uh, point number two starts in verse nine. We'll read verses nine to 12. Uh, Peter uh, then uh, says this. He says, uh, do not repay evil for evil or reviling uh, for reviling, uh, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, uh, let him keep from his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Uh, let him turn away from evil and do good let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Uh, so here, Peter kind of gives one uh, main point, And then he kind of backs it up with some reasons. And he ends up quoting Psalm 34. Uh, but here's Peter's main point. His, his main point is repay evil with blessing. Repay evil uh, with blessing. That, that is our second point. It, it, Peter is basically saying, uh, when people do insult you, when people do evil to you, when they revile you, it, it doesn't mean you, you do the same back to them. It doesn't mean you do evil back. It doesn't mean you insult them back. No, no. You are to bless them. You're, you're to repay not what they gave you, but to repay with blessing. Uh, <clears throat> which sounds really great. Right? Like, it sounds good. You can put it on a t-shirt that says, bless all the haters. Right? You're, it's great but it's really hard to actually do when the evil is being done against you, when somebody is actually insulting you, right? That's hard because I think that naturally in us, all of our, our, our natural being wants to repay evil for evil. Not that we like doing evil to other people. We, we, don't, we don't want that, but somehow if somebody does something wrong to you, you, you kind of feel justified, you know, in, in doing something back to them. You feel justified that, that you can repay them in the same way. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, I hate glitter. 
Uh, glitter is probably, I think, the worst substance that has ever been created on the face of the planet. Because you get glitter, and it, there's a little bit of it, which is fine, but you, you just touch a glitter card or something, and then it's all over your pants and your fingers, and it's in your food, and you can never get rid of it. You try and vacuum it, but two days later, it's still in your house. You can never get rid of glitter. It's awful. I hate it. Please don't give me a card that ever has glitter. <laughs> There are only a few things I hate in the world, Satan, sin, death, and glitter, okay? So I, I hate it. And if I just took a whole bunch of glitter and I just poured it in your house, if I took it and poured it in your car, that would just be pure evil in my mind. I would never do that to any of you unless you harm me. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of the YouTuber named Mark Rober. Uh, he had this video uh, that he created a glitter bomb. I think you can see it there up on the screen, a glitter bomb. Uh, because uh, what happened to him was that uh, he had an Amazon package uh, that was stolen from his front porch. Maybe some of you have had that happen where you have a package come and then somebody just comes and, and takes your package. It's really annoying. And he felt like these people needed to be punished because what they were doing was wrong. So he uh, is an engineer and basically uh, he devised this thing. He made a, a little box, looks like a package. You put it out on your, your front step and then you... You know, the, the thief comes, they steal it, they take it to their car or to their house, uh, and as they open up the package, just glitter, boom, everywhere, all over their house, and there's like alarm sound, doo, 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 and there's like cameras watching it. It's great. You should go home and watch the video. It's hilarious. There's four of them. Um, but it, it's great. I found such pleasure in somebody else being glitter bombed because I felt like, man, those people deserve it. Right? Like, they, they, they kind of, they need it. They need to be reminded of the wrong they're doing, and I think... In our life, we're kind of okay with an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, just generally in our society, right? That's what, that's what happens, you know? A, a politician bashes one, so they bash them back, right? Companies sue each other, right? Husband says something to his wife, wife is going to respond in kind, or even my kids the other day, I walked into the room, and they're both crying, and I'm like, well, what's, what's going on? Uh, and <laughs> and my, my daughter, uh, she's like, James bit me, and I'm like, What? James, why did you bite your sister? He's like, well, she bit me. I was like, what? Why are you doing that? But that is just our natural reaction. We, we bite one another back when they bite us, right? We do, we do evil because we feel like somehow that's okay, right? That, that's how we are naturally are. But what Peter's saying here in this text is that that is not the way of Christ. The, the way of Christ is not to repay evil for evil, not to insult those who have insulted us, right? There, there is no glitter bombing in the kingdom of God. Uh, and, and this idea of, of not repaying evil when it's done to us is not actually a unique idea to Christianity. Uh, if, if you look in other world religions, uh, if, if you look online just for advice, uh, people will often tell you, you know what, if somebody does something bad to you, you, you should take the high road. Right? If something happens to you, don't, don't, don't condescend to their level. Take the high road. Don't repay what they did. But here's what is unique to Christianity. Peter doesn't just say, don't repay evil. He says, repay evil with good. And that's the tricky part. Because that is really crazy. Right? It's, it's nuts. It's like somebody is taking your Amazon package and then you run after them with milk and cookies saying, here, you forgot this. <laughs> to love our enemies, that's tough. Right? But in, in the, the passage that Peter quotes here in Psalm 34, we, we see this kind of logic uh, laid out. So we'll put it up on the screen for you. Uh, it, it, 
it says, uh, whoever desires to love life and see good days. So, so if you desire that, you desire love, life, see good days, there's, there's three things he says you should do. And we're going to see that it's, it's not just not doing evil, but actually turning towards good. So it says, if you desire to love life and see good days, uh, let him te- keep his tongue from evil. So lips from speaking deceit. But let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And so the emphasis here, Peter is saying, is not just that you abstain from evil, but that you actually do good. You pursue after peace, even when evil, when harm is done to you. Uh, This idea, of course, is not uh, unique uh, to Peter. Uh, This is not his idea in any way. He was there when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus said something very similar in Luke chapter 6. Jesus, when people would say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, Jesus says, but I say to you, who here uh, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Paul also continues this, this is all over the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Or or even in 1 Corinthians, Paul again, uh, he says of himself, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. This is what Christians do. This is the defining mark of Christian ethics. That Christians are enemy lovers. They, They love those who hurt them. Uh, there's a great example of this uh, in a guy uh, named Dirk Willems. Uh, uh, Dirk was uh, one of the reformers, an Anabaptist in the uh, early 1500s. And uh, he came under the conviction uh, from scripture that what the Catholic, teach, uh, Catholic Church was teaching about baptism was actually incorrect. Uh, that it, he, he didn't need to just be baptized as an infant, but he ought to be, in keeping with the commands of Jesus, to be baptized as a believer And so he was living in the Netherlands at the time. Uh, He went and was baptized. He started to baptize other people. Uh, And because of this, uh, he was put in prison uh, by the Catholic Church and the the magistrates involved. He was there in prison for a couple months. Uh, He was given prison rations. He kind of started to become thin uh, and sickly. And uh, he was actually able to escape, though. He, he finally found a way uh, to escape. And as he was, he was getting away, though, uh, some of the guards spotted him off in the distance. And so they started chasing after him, right? And he was, he was kind of sick and, and didn't have a lot of strength. So the guards were quickly catching up to him. And it was wintertime. And so eventually he came to a, a small river. And now the river had a, a small thin sheet of ice along the top. And uh, he didn't have much choice. The guards were, were gaining on him. And so he had to kind of traverse this river and hope that it would hold him. And so he kind of slowly tiptoed across the ice, but because he was, he was thin and light, uh, he was able to make it across. The ice didn't break. And so as he was uh, about to continue on, though, uh, he heard a cry for help from behind him. Uh, he turned around, and he saw that one of the guards who was chasing him uh, had, had chased him onto the ice, and they were a little bit of a heftier fellow falling through. And so this guy is, is holding onto the ice for dear life, screaming, help, help, help. And Dirk has a choice to make in that moment. His freedom is there. But there's a man who's calling for help. What does he do? This man will probably lock him back up. 
he turns around, comes onto the ice, and he reaches down, and he helps the guard. He brings him up, out of the ice, safely to the shore. The guard, the guard is so thankful that his life has been saved. He, he, he says, we should just let this guy go. But all the other guards say, no way. No, this guy needs to go back to prison. And so the guards bring him back. They bring him back to prison. Uh, and he stays in prison there uh, for a couple more months. And then eventually he's tried uh, and he is convicted uh, and he is sentenced to burn at the stake. He had his freedom, but he chose to love his enemy. That, that's what enemy love looks like. It looks like laying down ourselves for the sake of others to show Christ. And that's what Christians are known for, or should be known for. But the question is, uh, why are Christians like this? You have people like Dirk. He's not an exception to the rule. Throughout the, the centuries, there's been many Christians who have loved their enemy in the face of opposition and cruelty. Why is it that Christians can actually do this? Uh, I think that Peter gives us two reasons here in the text uh, today of, of, of what can actually motivate us as Christians to have this kind of love uh, for those who might hurt us. Uh, so the two reasons are this that Christians can be motivated by looking forward and looking back. By looking forward and looking back. So we'll take them one at a time. First, by looking forward. Uh, look at verse 9 with me. Uh, verse 9 uh, says this, uh, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, uh, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, so you were called to bless, that you may obtain a blessing. So the blessing here is a, is a heavenly blessing that we would get, we would inherit. And, and he's saying bless so that you can get that heavenly blessing. Which might sound a little bit weird because you might say, wait, 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 wait. So you're saying if I don't bless those who do evil to me, if I don't love my enemy, then I'm not going to get the heavenly inheritance? Is that what Peter's saying? That's exactly what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. But your heresy alarm bells might be going off right now. You might be thinking, whoa, 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 wait. David, this sounds a lot like salvation by works. This sounds a lot like if I do this thing, then I'm going to inherit salvation? That doesn't sound like the gospel at all. That's not what Peter's saying, though. What Peter is saying here is, is simply just what the rest of the New Testament clearly teaches. And that is that if we have a true saving faith, if we have a true living hope, then that saving faith will necessarily be accompanied by good works. A, a true saving faith will necessarily be accompanied by work, good works because that faith, that hope that we have will change us. Uh, the, the clearest example of this is in James uh, chapter 2. Uh, James, uh, he, he writes uh, to the Christians and he basically says, hey, you know what, you, you have faith? You say you have faith? Awesome. You say you believe in God? Great. So do the demons. Big deal. My question is, does your faith change the way you live? 
Does your, your, do you show your faith by the way that you live? Because if you say you have faith, you believe in God, but your life is not any different, James says, that's a dead faith. That's not real. Because a true hope, a true faith in God will necessarily change you. It has to. Because God's doing something in your heart. Uh, John, uh, in his letter to 1 John, he, he says the same thing. He says uh, in 1 John 2, 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. If you think you're in the light, but you're, you're hating someone, it shows you're not in the light. Uh, he says later in, in chapter 3, uh, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So again, not saying we're, we're perfect, but that if we've truly been born of God, if we've been born again to this living hope that Peter talks about, then we will be marked by a love for those even who hurt us. So again, this does not mean that we somehow earn heaven, that we earn the blessing or merit it or any way. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. It's nothing we do. It's a gift of God. But we do demonstrate that that faith is true by the way that we live. And so this looking forward should motivate us. And here's how it kind of looks. We look and we see that there is a heavenly blessing, a heavenly inheritance that is there. And we say, I want that. I, I want that blessing. And so because I, I want it, I am going to examine my own heart, examine my own motives, examine my actions to make sure that the way I am living is in accord with the hope I'm saying I have. If I truly have that hope, I'm going to make sure that I am actually blessing people, that I am actually loving others as Christ has loved me. Uh, so we are motivated to love others by looking forward. Uh, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing we see here in the text is that we are motivated by looking back. Uh, look again at verse uh, 9. Uh, it says this. Uh, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. So you, were called you were called to bless those who do evil. And what Peter's doing here is actually referencing back to something he's just said before in chapter 2, verse 20. Look at what he says here, where he explains that phrase more fully. Uh, he says, uh, if, if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. So you've been called to endure suffering even when doing good. But why? Why? For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So, so Christians look back at what Christ has done. And that is their motive. They, they look at Christ as their example. Right? Christ, when he was going to the cross, he had thorns in his head. He had scars in his back, bleeding from the whipping of the Roman soldiers. They're there and they're putting nails in his hands. And Jesus, at that moment, has every right to give them back evil for what they are doing to him. And he has all the power in the world to do it. But what does he do? He prays for them. He prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
Right? So Jesus, in the midst of that, people doing evil to him, he, he blesses, and that is our example. But here's the thing, Jesus is not just an example. He's not just a, a, a teacher that we follow and we say, we follow your example, Jesus, because something's actually been done for us. You remember that phrase there in the verse? It says, because Christ also suffered for you. Wait, why does Christ have to suffer for you? Well, Christ has to suffer for us because the people doing evil were not just the ones who actually physically nailed him to the cross. We all have done evil against Jesus and he had to suffer for us. Right, the picture the Bible paints is that all of us, when we do evil to one another, when we sin against one another, uh, that, that is not just against us. It's ultimately against God. Right? Think about it like, like a child. Right? It, if a child comes and they beat up their sibling, they've not just sinned against their sibling, they've sinned against the parent who has repeatedly told them, don't do that. Right? It, it, when my, when my uh, son and daughter, when they bite each other, both of them are in trouble. Because they, they both sinned, not only against each other, but against me, their parent. And we, when we do evil to others, even if we feel that evil is justified, even if they've done something to us and we do something back, we have transgressed God's commands, his instructions of how we are actually to live. And in that moment, God uh, should give us uh, what we rightly deserve. He should give us... Uh, justice. We should get the evil, but the good news of the gospel, of course, is that he doesn't. Instead of giving us evil, he repays us with blessing. He repays us with amazing blessings of, of a relationship with him, of our sins forgiven, of eternal life, of being brought into a church, a people who are actually God's family and start to live out Christ's likeness. He gives us all that blessing when we did evil against him. And so when you ask the question, well, why are Christians able to bless those who do evil to them? The answer is because they have experienced it themselves. Right? All of us, if we think about what Christ has really done for us, that has got to be our motivation. That has to be the fuel in the engine of our love for others. It, it needs to be the wind in our sails of enemy love. All that Christ has done for us, he has, he has done all that for us. How can we not do that for others? That, that daily blessing that we receive from Jesus, daily forgiveness of the evil we continually do against him, that, that is our motivation. It, it is the thing that will, will push us through, that will give us the ability to actually do it. Because if we, if we just try and do it on our own, honestly, we're going to fail. We're going to fail unless we are, are driven forward, unless we are pushed by what Christ has already done uh, for us. Uh, so as we close, uh, just a bit of application for us. Uh, because perhaps uh, there are some of us here who really do need to examine whether our living hope that we say we have is real. We profess a faith of some kind in God, but the question is, is that faith really changing us? Is, is that faith actually leading us to want to love those who hurt us? Do we, do we just know about God's grace or we, have we experienced that grace in such a way that we are compelled, that we can do nothing other than to love those around us? But there are also some of us here uh, who know that there are situations we can think of right now uh, where there are people who have done uh, evil to us, they've hurt us, 
they've insulted us, or they've done something we just don't like. And the question is, I mean, those things are going to happen. But the question is, how are we going to respond to them? Because you can't control what people are going to do to you, but you can't control how you respond. And the question is, are you going to respond in a way that shows Jesus? Right? Because you have an opportunity now. Somebody's doing harm to you. This is the perfect opportunity for you to display exactly what the love of Christ really is. A, a love that blesses when we do evil. It's an incredible opportunity. Doesn't mean it's easy. But it is an opportunity to show what Jesus is really like. Especially to those who might be hard to the things of God. And maybe it's hard. Uh, we, we, maybe all you can do to start is just start by praying for that person. Maybe that's all you can do. You say, hey, Lord, bless so-and-so. Lord, Lord, would you bring salvation to so-and-so? But perhaps by God's help and drawing on all that he has done for us, uh, we can begin. We can begin to offer an encouraging word to those people in our lives who've said hurtful things. Perhaps we can offer to serve those. Serve those people who've been giving us the cold shoulder. What, what, are, the, what are the things in your life, the situations where, what are the opportunities to show Christ to all of those around us. Don't, don't do it just because you want to do it. Do it because Christ has done it already for you. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we are so immensely grateful. We deserve nothing from you, and yet you have given us everything. You've given us grace and help in time, our time of need. And so we thank you and we praise you and we ask that by your Spirit's work in us, we would be people marked by a love for those even who hurt us. Grant us that for your glory's sake, so that the world might know the kind of savior, savior you truly are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.